Hey, so last time we started talking about listener comments we've received, but we didn't get through very many before we got wildly off topic. So uh, do you have any other listener comments? I checked the subreddit the first week. Mm -hmm. I haven't had a chance to check it after the second week. So today, I think that we should go through suggested titles for our podcast. Ooh, like listener suggestions. Listener suggestions. They're bound to come up with something better than we have. Yeah. What is with that? Why are we so bad at this? Okay. I'm going to go through some of these. And at the end, we're going to leave it in producer Adam's hands to pick the two best ones that will go for voting for this that episode. people can vote on? Okay. So, Ill Conference says, what about the Brandan Show? The Brandan Show? Yes. A, a downvoted comment, a negative one. I oh. think the Brandan Show is Somebody's like, no, screw this. <laughs> the Brandan Show. Mm-hmm. I think it's embarrassing that it took other people to point out that our, our names, names right? are so close to each other. <laughs> Brandan Danderson. <laughs> so do we want to put any rules on this? See, Enwood has listed six. Six? Six titles. And I All think right. maybe that's just... the lightning round. Hit me. Okay. Legend Hunters. No. Word Nerds. Yeah, it's already out somewhere. A Figment of Fantasy. I kind of like that one. The Fable Table. Oh, that one's great. Story Forgers. Yeah, that and sounds like a game, though. Wordsmiths. Wordsmiths. You know what? Mm -hmm. My very first self-published poetry collection was called The Wordsmith. Really? Yeah. Like you have a self-published poetry high school collection? era. Wait, how did I not know this? <laughs> Wait. Because it's terrible. Where can I get a copy, Dan? I don't even know. I know that my wife has one. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. So you're saying that I could maybe have you show up to record one <laughs> night and we would- With some of my old poetry. It has some... short stories in it, too. Ooh. Yeah. I had to read on stream the first few paragraphs of my first book, which were so terrible. So, man, it's... I wrote a lot of this stuff during high school. Uh-huh. I wrote a couple of them um, during college. And then one Christmas- it was either right before or immediately after my mission when I was this poor, starving college student. I'm like, you know what I can do for Christmas this year? Just give people my own writing because that I can afford. I bet your grandma loved that. I, she probably did. Mm -hmm. I actually can't think of which of my two grandmas would have actually read the whole thing. I'm sure both of them were delighted to get the book. I don't know if either of them would have actually read the book. Mm. My grandmother taught, on my father's side, taught English and science fiction in the local high school for many years. Aww. She saw a science fiction class and, and directed the melodramas, because that's a thing in Idaho. So, my grandma, my grandma Wells, grew up on a ranch as a sheep herder. I mean, she herself was not, but she was the... <laughs> there was a pause there that I... As a sheep was hoping was followed by something. <laughs> well, it's because I was trying to think, what's the next word? She wasn't a sheep. I don't want to say rancher because I already said ranch. Is she a sheep herder? And then I thought, no, she didn't herd. She just made food for the people that herded sheep. So I don't know. So potato, good name, spelled phonetically. Oh, like, like Sam Gamgee yes. style? Mm -hmm. Says Potato. Slightly on topic. Slightly on topic? Is their suggestion. That's a pretty good description. I don't know if that's a good podcast title, but mm -hmm. as like the description when you click on the Spotify thing, 
Mm-hmm. Slightly on topic. That that works for me. So Al Listen is just saying, why aren't you guys excited about intentionally blank? Because a lot of listeners. I mean, I don't understand why they would say this. Intentionally, it's empty. How yeah. can you be excited by empty? Intentionally blank. Like yeah. it's, it's there's, there's nothing there. Nothing there on purpose. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like saying null set, except all of a sudden I'm thinking null set would be a really great title for a podcast if we were more like tech bros instead of writing guys. Ooh, what would it be like if we were tech bros? We'd have a lot more money. I would. <laughs> you already have all the money you need. <laughs> I would have invented some ridiculous app that doesn't do anything for anyone. Speaking of which, though, can I tell you, mm-hmm. we have talked in the past about how my favorite genre of news article is Ooh. food heist. My second favorite genre oh, of I thought news I was, article. Thought I was going to get. A food you thought heist. you were going to get a food heist. We haven't gotten any good ones lately. Damn. But my second favorite is tech bros inventing things that already exist. And there's plenty of high profile examples of this. And the one I think that was the most famous was when a guy who ran a ride share. I can't remember if it was Uber or Lyft. They proposed having larger vehicles that would go on a set route through the city. And he was really excited about it until somebody pointed out and just he'd come up with a bus. Anyway, the newest one that I saw was some tech bros in Silicon Valley have reinvented a root cellar. And it's just a thing that you have and you bury it in your backyard and it has stairs that go down and you put your vegetables Mm -hmm. in there. And they're like, this is eco-friendly and it doesn't take Freon and it just uses natural whatever. And I'm like, that's called a root cellar. It is tens of thousands of years old. Yes, but has anyone patented it? <laughs> Some ancient person before the dawn of civilization forgot um, to patent it like a fool. The podcast wow. that shall not be named. Hmm? got some fantasy sort of feel I, to I it. I do like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it does feel a little nihilistic, though. And mm. I'd like to think that we will eventually come up yeah. with a name. Possibly in this episode. It's in, it's totally possible that the next one I read will be our title. Okay. I prefer listening to podcasts on YouTube. It's a nod title <laughs> name, isn't it? My favorite part about that is that if we named our podcast that, then like Spotify would have to carry it. And that would make me laugh. I don't know if it would make anyone else laugh. But stuff that makes you and I laugh and nobody else cares about is kind of the theme of our entire show. Yes. <laughs> Here's a topic for us. They, they mentioned Endless Pages being a good name for a podcast title, okay. which it is. We, we talked about, for those who, who didn't tune in however many episodes ago, that we t- the very important discussion of Brandon's book title, The mm-hmm. Book of Endless Pages. That, that was our mentioned. inaugural episode. Was it? There the we go. The very first one. How do you name your books? Oh, do you get asked this? Poorly. By people? People do sometimes ask. And they ask me in particular because uh, the uh, serial killer books all have really cool names. Mm -hmm. And for the most part, they're not mine. (laughs) And so I have to admit, oh, like, I'm not a serial killer was just the placeholder name on the file. And my editor picked it. I don't want to kill you. And over your dead body both came from the German editor. Okay. Who I sent him the original, you know, the manuscripts and said, okay, let's do this. And he wrote back and said, okay, but we're changing the titles because yours are terrible. And so he came up with those and they were brilliant. Mm. So, yeah. Mr. Monster, you'd probably have that one, right? Mr. Monster is actually a direct quote yeah. from Son of Sam. Mm-hmm. 
And then the other ones that I've named, Devil's Only Friend and Nothing Left to Lose, are just both quotes from 70s rock songs. Yep. <laughs> and in fact, that's book four and six. Book five also originally was titled with a quote from a 70s rock song. It was called Six Crooked Highways, which is from Bob Dylan. But you... then Over Your Dead Body was way better. Do you have any like particularly bad titles that like we know that I had two pretty bad titles <laughs> for books originally? And fortunately, they were changed in the editorial process. Well, let's see. We talked about Full of Holes already. Mm. One really interesting titling thing that I ran across was with the Partial series. Mm -hmm. And the reason that I think you will like this story is because it immediately called to mind a naming convention that I learned from Mark Rosewater and his magic articles. Yes. Which is when you are doing a set of something, mm -hmm. you're doing three, they either need to be all the same or all different. You can't have two that match and then a third one that's weird because then it is not part of mm -hmm. the trilogy. And so we had partials and we wanted to name the second one fragments. And then the third one, I wanted to do something completely different. And they're like, no. You've already established a pattern of yeah. things that are smaller parts of something else, a single word that is plural and two syllables. Like we had established all of these patterns. And so the third book, we had to find a word that fit and we settled on ruins. So I did this weird thing with the Stormlight Archive books where I wasn't sure if I was going to go with it or not, but symmetry is a big deal. In the Stormlight mm -hmm. Archive, it's a religious ideal and things like that. And they have a form of poetry that is a poem that you can read forward and backward kind of sort of thing. Yeah. And I have made it so far that the initials of the first four books are symmetrical. So the Way of Kings and then Words of Radiance. And then Oathbringer at the center is just Oathbringer. Mm -hmm. And then the most rhythm one is Rhythm of War, which is Words of Radiance. And mm -hmm. so now I've got this sort of, I could and probably should just go for it and find something that is the opposite of the Way of Kings. So, so it needs to have K-W? Uh, well, K-O-W-T, perhaps. Oh, are you going to go all the well, words? Well, maybe. K-O-W-T. Like, yes. Knights of... Waluigi's toilet. What? I don't know. <laughs> you were making a face. Knights of Waluigi. Knights of That's what water my 11 year old would come up with. <laughs> Kangaroos on Wall Street taxis. You're fired. Wow, no wonder we can't name our podcast. Koalas over Western Tundra. Yeah, fired. Knights of can work, yeah, right? right? You have knights in the way of kings. Yes, it's about orders of knights, yeah. right? And I'm like, oh, you know, I've been trying to... Knights of wasted terrain. No, terrain's a terrible word. Why is terrain a terrible word? Well, because it doesn't sound right. Okay. Knights of whatever thing. <laughs> I already told you you're fired. Why are you, why are you continuing on with this? That's a, so that's the thing that's kind of going on in the back of my head. I like, I put too many rules on myself because all of the book titles are also titles of in-world books. 
Mm. Oh or, man, yeah. yeah. Because the way of change, yeah, I mean, you can come up a with book. a book yes. called "Kittens on Wife's Tummy." <laughs> I suppose. I suppose that I could. I would like to see the response on Facebook and you know my social media when I come out and I say, you know, it was really stressful matching the pattern, and I just kind of snapped a little. So, "Kittens on Wife's Tummy" is the name of the next Stormlight book. <laughs> Deal with it. You know, goodbye. Just whatever you do, don't say. If you don't like it, blame Dan, because my house will be burned down within minutes of that announcement. Mm, there is somebody out there. Somebody out there. Somebody out there who's like, actually, I'd really like that. It's a cool sort of Kaufman-esque non sequitur. Yeah. Uh, it's, you know, 10 years in the making. He has come up with this joke and prank to play. But, I mean, I would never play a prank on my audience in regards to the title of something I'm working on. Knights of Western Tunisia. You already used Western. I know. You already used Knights. Well, I, there's not a lot of words that start with W. Hmm. Uh, knights of Walrus Tusks. <laughs> that actually sounds awesome. Don't use that. I'm going to. <laughs> For something. I don't know what. So, producer Adam has a big list of suggestions that fans have made. He didn't actually tell me who sent these various ones, so I okay. apologize uh, to those listening. But how about partial cognition? Partial cognition. Is that mm. related to something we said, or is somebody just telling us that we're not thinking things through? You know, I'm not sure. I'm going to pretend that we said something that was really relevant and interesting. I'm going to pretend that we didn't. Oh, yeah? This, this person just hates us. You are... For those not benefiting from the audio feed, that's a uh, right excuses joke. Dan here has this blanket on that is a a leopard pattern sort of thing. Is it? It's kind of like a snow leopard yeah. thing. And you settle into the chair and pull it around, and you look like a monarch. Well, it's it does have this kind of kind of spotted look to it, and I do have my big white beard. And I do look a little bit like the king of walrus tusks. <laughs> so on this naming stuff, I kind of have this bit of a terror that because I told that story about the spirit of Adonis, right? Mm -hmm. And in that same book, I just, you know, was naming things randomly. And I came up with not a common one, not one I'd ever heard, but a racial slur accidentally and named a type of fish after it Ooh. fortunately my editor caught it wow and he's like yeah this is actually a racial slur and i looked it up and lo and behold it was one i had never heard and so i have this like professional fear in my career mm -hmm. that i am going to do something like that and it's going to go to print and then i'm going to discover that you know, I've done something, something terrible. And this might relate to an experience you and I both had. Ooh. So for those who don't know, Dan and I were both editors on a magazine at BYU. It yes. has a semi-professional, we call it, sci-fi fantasy magazine, mostly there for aspiring people in the publishing industry to get some experience with the actual putting together and publishing of a yeah. magazine. We pick the stories, we run production. There is very little oversight, and it's called the Leading Edge, or actually Leading Edge, since we 
Yeah, when we were there, yeah. we got rid of the. Yes. And it was Peter who spearheaded that. Mm -hmm. I do look back on Leading Edge as the single most valuable educational experience I got in college. Yeah, me too. Absolutely. Hands on making things and picking stories and seeing bad stories come through with the same bad ideas that I had put in my earlier early stories and seeing them from an external viewpoint and being like, oh, this is why people get so frustrated when, for instance, you start your story with a nameless figure. You just say the nameless figure stumbled from the shadows and then lightning struck and then the nameless figure did this and then the nameless figure did this and then you just name them where it's like, why did you? Why did you go through all of this effort to withhold a name mm -hmm. or the classic describes themselves in the mirror or all of these sorts of things? Yeah. It's just really handy. If you want to get better at noticing when you're doing cliched things, maybe go work on a magazine for a little while. Yeah. If you want to be better at not being worse. But speaking of tangents, that's a tangent. That was a tangent. When we were at Leading Edge. Yes. We got this fantastic submission. One of the very best story submissions we'd ever gotten. Is this it, Packard? No, Packard oh. is really good. This relates to professional fears. Remember, you're, oh. you're gonna you're okay. gonna figure this out as we go. Oh no, I know what this one was. <laughs> there you go. Now you guys have heard in real time when Dan figured out what I was going to bring oh, up. Oh no, this was a nightmare. It was an awesome story. It was a mashup of Sherlock Holmes and Jack the Ripper and aliens yeah and it was super good the prose was fantastic and we're like wow why did someone send us this i mean we paid we paid like half a cent a word which is not great is not much we were small press student yeah. magazine and a good place to get a start this one was phenomenal mm -hmm. we were jumping with joy at how good this story was and so we bought it and we published it and i was head editor of that issue and i get a phone call a mm, month or so later from I think it's it was Marnie. It was one of the Parkins. Yeah. Scott or Marnie. They are ex leading edge alumni who are luminaries in the sci fi yeah. fantasy local fandom community. A, a and, generation before us. Yes. And Marnie says, I think there's a bit of a problem. We read this story and recognized it from somewhere. And then we went back and looked and it had been published in Asimov's or something like this. And the person who sent us the story had plagiarized it and we had published the plagiarized story. Yeah. Can you remember whose story it was? Um, the real author? Jeffrey Landis. Yeah. Jeffrey Landis, a fantastic writer. The story is called The Singular Habits of Wasps. Mm -hmm. We went to him and bought reprint rights from him. We did our best to Which make were good. pretty expensive. Yeah. But, you know, for he, us, he deserved them. They he, were expensive for yeah. us. It wasn't like he was asking for, you know, 20 grand. But it and was... We also, yeah. if I remember, we... Printed up a bunch of labels yep. so that we could, you know, physically alter the cover and the table of contents and then the actual page of the story in every physical copy that we still had access and, to. And we sent to everybody who had bought it, which, you know, is basically only alumni of Leading Edge that got the Leading Edge magazine. Like, yeah. you know, there were a hundred copies of that sold. But I seem to remember there were a handful of like, dentist's offices or something that yes. subscribed so that they could have a little magazine in their waiting but room they had to be alumni right yeah or something they probably like that were. or related like they were the parents of someone who'd worked on the staff or something i mean we did publish good stories for what we were 
mm-hmm. for how much we could pay. And we spent a lot of time pouring through the slush to find. And we published some stories that I think are great. Like, God Doesn't Play Dice with Packard Convertibles. Yeah, that was the, the one best I was thinking of. Story that was fantastic. That was that one, not plagiarized. That, that one won some awards, Yeah, I think. And we also had really good art that we, mm-hmm. we got. One of our covers won a Chesley Award. Yes. For what's his name? Uh, the dude that does all the art. <laughs> the dude that does all the you art. That, James you know, Christensen. James Christensen. <laughs> yes. James Christensen, the dude who does all the art. So James Christensen is a very famous local artist. Mm-hmm. And we thought, you know what? We have the chance to interview him for like the special anniversary issue. And he is also a BYU alumnus. And we thought, you know, maybe we could get a piece of art that he'd let us use. And so we went to his house, and I think it was you and me and my neighbor who was an artist. And we thought, okay, you can help lend some artistic credibility to our interview here. And we got there, and he led us back into his workroom, which had several paintings on the walls that were in the middle of production. Mm -hmm. But the central table was just covered with Warhammer figures. And it turns out he was this closet Warhammer nerd who never played the games. He just painted all the stuff because he really loved it. My favorite Christensen piece that I saw during that trip, tangent to our tangent, was that there was this very regal folio-style, illuminated manuscript-style painting on his stairs that was depicted a figure as if straight from one of these, like a full illuminated manuscript page. If someone had, had taken King James himself or whatnot and done a beautiful with real foiling and things like this. And then he was covered in toilet paper. And the <laughs> plaque at the bottom said, somebody TP'd the king. That's just the name of the piece. And he was sitting there stiffly. And I have never been able to find like a print of this or, you know. It's just the one shot that he made. Yeah. Whoever, uh, whoever owns that, let me buy it. But <laughs> it is one of my, we're talking about professional regrets. It's actually one of my professional regrets that I never got to work with James Christensen in a professional capacity, right? Like, I would have loved to have had a James Christensen painting involved in my work in some way, yeah. right? I've been able to just basically grab all my other favorite and author- he passed artists. away, right? He did. Yeah. And, like, I managed to get a Donato piece, and I've, you know, just all of these artists that I love. I got Waylon pieces, right? Like, but I never, you know, yeah. I wasn't, if, if you're not familiar with James Christensen, definitely look him up because he has a very distinct kind of fairy tale style to his paintings. And it's just gorgeous, really incredible figure work and things like that. The um, number one number of artists you'll find paintings from hanging in my house will be Waylon's, mm-hmm. right? But number two will be Christensen's. I've got four or five of those hanging around and just awesome. love his art. But not somebody TP'd the king. Not somebody TP'd the king, but... Professional regrets, not regrets, fears, right? Mm -hmm. I am afraid of the day that someone says, look, Sanderson plagiarized this thing. And I didn't, or I didn't know that I was somehow, right? Like, that's one of the things that worries me the most. Mm -hmm. Do you have, like, professional fears? One thing that I am genuinely kind of terrified of is because so much of what I write is horror and set in, in the modern world. And so this... Fear has a backstory Mm -hmm. in the third John Cleaver book. I don't want to kill you. I needed an English teacher and I was going to put our mutual friend, the love basket, 
Brian Ellingford. Did you just out Brian as the love basket? I do that every time I visit his classes. <laughs> and he always says, and this is my friend Dan, who has a nickname for me that he's not allowed to tell you. And then I tell them. And it's my favorite thing. Anyway, he's an English teacher and a really, really good one. And so I wanted to put him into the book and then realized as I was writing the book, no, I need this English teacher to be a bad guy. And in fact, in the final version of it, the character, because of the needs of the story, like he was caught with child porn and, and things like that. At which point I realized, well, I cannot publish this with my friend's name because he's an English teacher and that's going to look really bad. So I put him in as something else, changed the name of the guy. And now, you know, at least once a year, Brian will say, hey, thank you so much for not naming your, you know, pedophile English teacher after me. And I am terrified that I am going to do that accidentally to one of the very bad people that I put into a book, whether it is, you know, a molester or a murderer or a, you know, just an absolute a-hole for whatever other reason. And that I'll give them the real name of a real person who has the same job and the same things and that it will be the... Right, because there's like some sort of weird name association in the back yeah. of your head or something, or it's just completely random. Even or... if it's somebody that I don't know, mm -hmm. you know, like at the end of every movie, it'll say, you know, any similarity to people living or dead is entirely coincidental. And I know that I wouldn't necessarily be liable for anything like that. Yeah. But I don't want to ruin some teacher's career because they happen to have the same name as a pedophile in my horror novel. Right. That then like takes off. Yeah. Right? Like. I actually, I don't like Karen memes for this reason, mm -hmm. because I know someone named Karen, right? Yeah. And it's a really funny meme until I think about what happens when you're named this person and then suddenly an entire generation's word association with your name is to something this terrible. And I asked her about it. She's like, I don't care. It doesn't so, bother me. So but speaking man. of which, speaking of this, mm -hmm. we were just watching Spider-Man Homecoming just a couple days ago with my kids. And he has that whole sequence in like act two where he is on his own. And so the only dialogue he has is with the suit mm -hmm. and the AI in the suit is a woman's voice and he names it Karen. Yeah. And I thought that's so funny because that predated the Karen is bad meme by like two years. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and how funny that that was the name that was chosen. And then almost instantly that name became such a... Pariah? Pariah kind of thing. Yeah. I don't like the memes that use people's real names. I can't find them funny just by association, embarrassment, or it's the wrong term. Just yeah. anger by association. So, mm -hmm. another professional fear. This one's going to sound a little ridiculous, but I am afraid that at some point I'm going to have to stop writing and get a real job. Oh, the cubicle chasing you. Yes. Now, this is not imposter syndrome. I do not have imposter syndrome. That's just not a thing that has bothered me since my days as like an early 20-something writer. Yeah. Since then, I've been confident in my writing. But what I'm not necessarily confident in is we work in a field that is entertainment. And entertainment yeah. follows whims, right? Publishing in particular is incredibly volatile. Yes. And the winds of change will go back and forth. You know, I had one book that didn't land very well in my cyberpunk series, mm -hmm. and I could not sell a manuscript for about four or five solid years. Yeah. Because my sales numbers had been so bad on that series. 
And I remember a point, and I'm not going to name any names, but we were sitting and doing an event with several well-established long-term writers who are fantastic writers and who were talking about the fact that they can't sell books anymore. And we even had, you know, someone break down into tears on that panel. I don't know if you remember that, but man, I'm like, thought these are greats of the field, right? These yeah. are these are people who are fantastic writers. One of them, household name for those who read fantasy. Yeah. Right? When I was growing up. And now this is a person who's like, industry, you just can't make a living at it anymore. And in my head, I wasn't hearing you can't make a living at it. I was hearing I can't make a living at it, right? Yeah. And there is that phantom I've talked before that a lot of my early career, before I got published, I imagined a cubicle chasing me. If I didn't stay ahead of it by you know building good habits and writing stories, I'd be captured by the cubicle and turned into a, you know, I have to have a real Office job. drone again. And there's nothing wrong with that job. I know people who love doing that kind of job. But for me, that means I can't write anymore, mm -hmm. right? That's the fear. It's yeah. not that there's anything wrong with being an insurance actuary, which is the thing I actually, I, I use as a joke <laughs> when I'm telling this story. Yeah. But I worry about hitting that point where number one, I am kind of in a later stage of my career and not recognizing that it's not the industry. It's the fact that people just aren't reading my books for some reason and worrying about then entering the workforce again and not being able to write. Well, and those are some important distinctions to make. Mm -hmm. Like, it's not that you think that one job would be terrible. Mm -hmm. It's not a, oh my gosh, what a horrible life to have your job. Yes. No, it's, oh my gosh, what a horrible thing to lose my job. Yes. Which, my mom's an accountant. Of, yeah. She loves accounting. She worked well past an age when someone could retire because she just loved her job. I know there are lots of people who love those jobs. I would hate any job that is not leaving me creatively fulfilled, mm -hmm. telling my stories. Yeah. And, you know, the, the other uh, kind of big thing there for distinction that I wanted to draw has now completely fled my mind. So we don't need to worry about it. <laughs> like there is a distinction there of I worry about and I don't want to say this too much because I don't want to editorialize about these other authors, which they may not have been thinking this way at all. I was thinking that I might think this way, if that yeah. makes sense. The worry that I am out of touch with what people like in stories mm -hmm. and unable to therefore give them stories. But also there's a fear there that I suspect these writers are doing good work. I, in fact, I know one of these writers that we're talking about that was having trouble selling things. I had read the things they were having trouble selling. I'm like, these are great. Yeah. Why are these not selling? This author is really good. And I am worried about the whims, as I said, of the population turning away from what I write, even though it's still good. Yeah, well, and that's the other thing that I have now remembered. Thank you very much. I think it's important to point out that this is a fear that doesn't have any blame attached to it. Mm -hmm. That it's not, hey, these are luminaries in the field and they are entitled to a career. Right. And it's not, what is wrong with you readers? You're not reading the stuff I think you should read. Like, mm -hmm. it's more a fear of, like you were saying, that that maybe I am out of touch. Right. Or maybe it's a fear of just the things that I love are no longer popular enough for me to make a living doing yeah. them anymore. Here's a good example. Like, I remember in the late 90s, this is music-based, 
when for like a hot minute, swing was the hottest thing ever. Oh yeah. It's like a like year. One year. And at that year's Grammys, these kind of swing and rockabilly albums won everything. Mm-hmm. And then next year they were gone. And I think both about those people who were excellent musicians who thought their big break had come and thought now people are appreciating. I mean, one of them was Brian Setzer, who had a career back yeah. when Rockabilly first, but you know, he'd spent So it was it was a comeback for yes, him. But then there's like yeah. the squirrel nut zippers that yes. no one's heard of for <laughs> 20 years. Yes. And they're all like, wow, people actually appreciate our genre. And then nope, all done. Yeah. Or the people who would have been up for Grammys that year when Swing suddenly got big and mm-hmm. you had your like best album ever, you know, the opus of your career. And it wasn't what people it wanted. It wasn't anymore. what people wanted. And it's not like anyone was wrong. Like yeah. the whims of pop entertainment shift and move. It happens more quickly in the music industry, but it yeah. can leave people behind. And that frightens me, not on an existential I stay up at night, but it mm-hmm. it is a worry in the back of my it, mind. It's definitely a worry. Like one of the ones, again, for music that I think of, and you can tell where our musical tastes came from because these are all 90s examples. Mm. MC Hammer. Oh, yeah lost his career in the rise of gangster rap yep and he tried to follow he did put out a gangster rap album and it's kind of adorable because that's just not who he is and that's not the style of music that worked for him Mm -hmm. but tastes turned and he couldn't keep up and so yeah i do worry about that Mm -hmm. and you know at the same time i look at the trends in publishing right now and i'm delighted by them There are books out there that I think are incredible. The book that I'm reading right now, instantly, by the halfway point in that book, instantly jumped up into a top five book of all time for me. Ooh, what is it? It is A Leaf the Unseen by G. Willow Wilson, which is basically a contemporary fantasy slash cyberpunk that is set in an Arabian city. Sweet. It's so good. It is beautifully written. The story is incredibly compelling. And it's a few years old now. It's three or four years old. But yeah, like the new stuff coming out, I don't want to give the impression that we are opposed to it and we think things should just always be our fiction forever. But yeah, and that's why I think a big part of being a professional artist is constantly pushing forward and trying new things and redefining yourself. Yep. And kind of understanding that popularity and quality don't correlate either direction necessarily Mm -hmm. you know we've we've talked about this idea that if something is popular it's doing something right yes and i'm not on that bandwagon it's like oh it sold so many copies it must be it must be terrible but i also have to acknowledge that and i say this you know i am one of the top of my field right i have to acknowledge that you don't become top of your field because you are the best in entertainment. You become top of the field because you are good, you know, hopefully excellent, and you happen to have the winds of what is popular. The winds of what is popular are blowing your direction. Like with me, why am I where I am? I happen to be writing a shared universe of interconnected novels that started coming out two years before the MCU started. Mm-hmm. That's a big part of, I think, why I am where I am. And you have to kind of be, I think, okay 
in any entertainment field acknowledging that this could happen. Yeah. Now, are you familiar with the music sharing experiment that's about this topic? No. This is another anthropology thing. So there was a university, and I can't remember which one it was, they did an experiment to try to determine not necessarily what becomes popular, but how things become popular. And the way they did this is they had several hundred students and they put them into little pods of like 20 or 30 people. And each pod had a unique instance of the same music sharing software. Okay. And you could like vote on which ones you like and share them with other people and so on and so on. And in every single pod, a different song became the runaway hit. Like there was no way they determined to predict what was going to be huge and what became mega popular and what was lost. And sometimes the song that one pod adored and was like the hit song of the summer, another pod, no one liked it. No one listened to it at all. And this is why it's so hard to be a producer or a publisher or something like that, because you have to just guess what you think is going to take off. And there's no way to know. And I mean, there is a certain quality threshold that certain things have to hit. Mm -hmm. But you can see this happening in publishing by the number of authors who have decided to take on a pseudonym and do a different genre. Mm -hmm. And kind of every time they do it, it's kind of like trying to prove that they could do it again. Maybe I'm wrong, but I see when Stephen King does this or J.K. Rowling did it and Michael Crichton did it. When someone does this, it's kind of like a, could I do it again? Could I, could I, I, I could do this again, right? Yeah. I'm going to publish under a different name and see if I deserve all my success. And none of them got anywhere near the success that they got under their own name. Now, yeah. all three of those, the books were successful and would be continued to be published, right? Mm-hmm. None of the three of that, that I know of, of those three flopped outright. Yeah. And so there is a level of, you know, quality there that readers did notice. Mm-hmm. But it was a stark divide between yes. mid-list and runaway international bestseller. Exactly. They were certainly still popular enough that people were able to put together, you know, the Stephen King pseudonym and say, you know what? I'm pretty sure this is Stephen King because of yes. X, Y, and Z things. People are not going to find those hidden clues unless they like your stuff. Yep. But comfortably mid-list versus everyone in the world knows who you are there's a big divide and there's no way of knowing what's going to cross that threshold. One that I think about that maybe I should have as a professional fear that I don't (laughs) is being forgotten, right? Mm. People talk about this. What if you're forgotten? Actually, the first time I ever got this question was someone came to me and they said it very respectfully, but it's going to sound not very respectful. They're like, how would you feel if your entire legacy is a footnote to Robert Jordan? Right. This is back in the early days. Yeah. And they're like, what if the only way that anyone ever remembers you is that in the Wheel of Time entry in the encyclopedia, there's a mention, oh, and Brandon Sanderson was involved. And that gave me thought. And I thought, well, how do I feel about that? And I thought, I don't really care mm-hmm. because like I know there are authors out there who kind of search for immortality in their writing. Yeah. And there's like two aspects of this. Number one, that's not really why I'm doing what I'm doing. I really legitimately like telling the stories. I like building things. I like making something out of nothing. And I like creating this thing. That's like what I want to do. And remember, that's a little bit like asking, 
are you afraid of not being popular? Well, I'm afraid of having to stop doing my job, but yeah. I'm actually not afraid of not being popular because I like my writing. I'm confident in my writing. I got over that early in my career trying to break in. I love being super popular. Great with that. Not going <laughs> to trade it in. But my fear is not stopping being popular. My fear is not being able to make a living or kind of continuing to beat my head against the wall on something when if I just would kind of turn the other direction and kind of learn from what's happening in the rest of the industry, maybe I would, you know. Yeah. But well, and this question in particular yeah. is not just, are you afraid of not being popular? It's, are you afraid of no longer being popular in a hundred years? Yeah. Like, don't put that kind of stress on an author. We're already worried about it now. <laughs> like, how do yeah. I appeal to the readers of today mm -hmm. and to the readers three or four generations from now? Like, I don't know. I don't well, know what they're going to want to read, and, and I can't concern myself with that. The other aspect to it is, if you have published like anything with any meager amount of popularity, now that the internet exists, you are now immortal, right? In yeah. fact, there's a decent chance that everyone's social media profiles will still be around in a thousand years. That's I don't know what kind of chance... Thought. But it like I would assume that the Internet Archive and the Wayback Machine are things that will be preserved mm -hmm. going forward because they'll be preserved. I don't know if they will be meaningfully studied or known. no, but you'll be available. But you, right? yeah, there will be people Someone could search. So then it's just a matter of popularity. You are yeah. going to exist like I severely doubt that I will not have an Internet imprint if the Internet exists. <laughs> For the rest of the internet, I think that's probably the case for a lot of people. Yeah. But it's certainly if you publish a book and it goes into the Library of Congress or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. They get a digital copy. They're just going to keep all that archive. And, yeah. you know, you're there. You aren't going to vanish. So then how popular are you going to be in 100 years? You know what I'm a lot more concerned about mm. is the stagnation of the art form. Mm. Like there's a part of me, and this is the English major part of me that's thinking if your books or my books are still what people are reading in a hundred years, what have people been doing for a hundred years? Like I remember a friend of mine listening to, I don't know what it was, Vivaldi probably, mm -hmm. and saying, this is the best. This is the best music ever. No one will ever be this good. And I'm like, that's the most depressing thing I've ever heard. We have to, as a human species, we have to keep producing things that were better than what people did before. I would much rather think that someone was inspired by my work to create something better than just people will be reading Dan Wells forever.